Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. It's Wednesday, April 15th, what ordinarily would have been tax day before uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic swept across the country. And I think all, all tax deadlines uh, have been delayed. Today, our topic is going to be the live events industry. Obviously, this industry has been decimated uh, by the ongoing pandemic. My guest today, helping me break it all down, is Luis Sanchez. Luis, how's it going? I'm good. How are you, Nick? I'm doing fantastic. You're in New York City, which is one of the epicenters of this thing. How has your life changed in the past month and a half, two months? Well, I could lie to you and tell you that the mood's been great, but it hasn't. I, I kid you not. Um, in the past six weeks, I've probably cumul- cumulatively spent about four or five hours outside of my apartment. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how that's how New York City is right now. Yeah, it's been it's not quite that bad up here in D.C. I, I get out maybe a couple times a day to walk the dog. I, I've, I've typically been known as an inside person, and uh, I don't think I'm gonna be an inside person anymore coming out of this thing. Uh, but uh, but we shall see. We'll get through this. Uh, yeah. Are you uh, guys under quarantine as well? Or so yeah, shelter in place in Virginia through June 10th. So the governor announced that a week or two ago, and so so that's what, that's what we're doing. My fiance is a school teacher, so they're on remote schooling. I think this just this week, you know, spring break was last week. Just this week, they started actually teaching remotely. So getting used to that, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I think everybody's le- le- having to learn how to do things uh, differently these days. Uh, the industry we're going to talk about today, as I said off the top of the show, is live events. Talking about sports, concerts, that sort of thing. And this is an industry that really kind of suddenly uh, uh, shifted. I remember March 11th when the Thunder and the Jazz game. Uh, tip-off was about to take place right before uh, the game got started. The game got shut down. And after that, it seemed like across the entire industry, uh, there was this massive shift from March Madness got canceled, the Masters, the Olympics got delayed. Uh, you know, what, what was it like, Luis, just just seeing this this ca- cascade uh, of events take place as, as you just see all the, all these things become canceled all at once? Yeah. Um, I remember at first people were talking about how they could, we could watch uh, March Madness without audiences, and then pretty quickly it went from you know maybe we could still watch it to no it's canceled, and ever since then I mean there's just been a whole list of other events, sports events, concerts that have been canceled. I mean the Masters golf tournament's been canceled, the Olympics has been moved, delayed a year. Um, you know, we're still we're still waiting to hear on whether or not we're going to have a conclusion to the NBA season. So, um, you know, I would say it happens slowly, then suddenly. That, that tends to be how these how these things happen. I mean, is, is there any analog uh, for this type of shutdown? I know mean, probably nothing where, where everything's been shut down across the board. But is there anything where there's something we can even compare to this? Uh, you know, looking historically. I mean. Other than other than like a world war, the the only other modern comparison I could think of is uh, what happened after September 11th and the terrorist attacks. Um, so we're going to be talking about the live concert companies, and I was looking back to see what happened to Live Nation after September 11th, 
and you know they had a lot of issues where not only did not only were a lot of audiences afraid to go to crowded um, events, but a lot of the artists were also afraid to to tour and to like visit New York. And um, you know you could see that after nine eleven, a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the economy were afraid. I mean, afraid to fly, afraid to go to theme parks, you name it. And I think there's some similarities to what is playing out right now, where I saw a survey that indicated that about 70% of sports fans were um, nervous or afraid to go to sport sporting events until there's more clarity around treatments or a vaccine. Um, but obviously this is very different because you know, as, as the president likes to say, we're fighting an invisible enemy. So it's similar, but different. Absolutely. And and I think when you laid out that September 11th thing about people being afraid to travel and go to these things, even after the immediate risk is removed, I think that's, that's a big question around this industry is not only how long until we can reopen, but when things do reopen, how quickly or, or if at all, do we return to the previous levels the industry was in? We can't really answer those questions right now, but what we can do is put some context around really how big this industry is and, and how, how, how much is being impacted. I know you pulled some numbers on the, how big the live music industry is, Luis, and, and some numbers on, on sports. Can you share those with us about just how big is this industry, or at least was it before uh, all, all the craziness of the past six weeks or so? Yeah, so I've spent some time looking at some of the live events companies in the past couple months because, well, there's uh, their stocks have been completely hammered. And in doing that research, I learned that the live music market is about um, a $30 billion annual uh, global industry. And that's actually been growing at a nice clip every year, um, partially because artists want artists need to tour to make money and also partially just because there's been a shift in the way people want to spend their money and and people have this desire to spend more money on experiences and going out versus you know buying widgets and and consumer devices um we also know that the as far as sports is concerned the broadcasting rights are apparently worth uh, about 22 billion in the U.S. and the, and the U.S. is about 40 percent of the global market. So, you know, 50 billion around there, give or take, is the global sports broadcasting market, and that doesn't even capture all the revenue that's generated from people who actually go to events, buy tickets to see their favorite sports teams, um, travel to go to those events, uh, pay for hotel rooms, pay for concessions. So, you know. Putting it all together, this is a massive, massive global industry. Absolutely. I just To your point, just from the live events alone, uh, massive amounts of dollars, and that's before you even talk about the TV rights. And when you talk about you know, all of us are sitting at home trying to find things to watch, really one of the dominant, uh, at least when it comes to live TV, things in, in the U.S. that we watch are these sports sporting events. So if you look back, 2019, eight of the top 10 highest rated broadcasts in 2019 or sporting events, 15 of the top 20 uh, were sporting events. So you, you remove this uh, from the landscape, uh, not only is this, this massive amounts of revenue pulled off, but massive amounts of, of just interest uh, that, that people lose, and that impacts uh, some of these rights deals. We, we've, we've heard 
some speculation about what this could do uh, for ad rights, how it could change the future of sports. If you've done any research there on, on what we should be thinking about as far as the ad side uh, of this this sports shutdown. Yeah. So look, this is this is like a really unfortunate situation because you'd think that if everyone was stuck at home, what better service to offer them than entertainment over 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 television or over the internet? And you know, I, I think that sports are going to come back eventually, and and we could see a resurgence. But right now, it's just really unfortunate that sports have been taken off the air. Um, so as far as the business model, you know, we we just referenced the um, the sports rights, and that's part of it. But as, as you just said, advertising is also a big part of it. Um, the the advertising market is is pretty huge. I, I know that for like ESPN, um, they're they're taking in about three billion dollars just from advertising alone, and and that's and that's approaching. That's that's roughly half of what they take in from their affiliate fees, which which are uh, what people actually pay to watch, uh, pay to the cable operators to watch ESPN. Um, but as you know, advertising itself is a really cyclical industry, um, and one of the reasons it's cyclical is because it's one of the first things that sponsors and advertisers will reduce spending on, just because it's it's just easy to cut that spending. So. There's all sorts of estimates for, for what could happen. Um, it's, it's safe to say that we're going to see advertising rates decline. We just don't know how much. And that's going to partially be a reflection of how much how much viewership is, is going to still be there. And it's also a reflection of the uh, advertising budgets. Um, and, the, and there's also this idea that, you know, there's this, there's this trend that's been occurring over the last... 10, 20 years where more and more advertising spend has shifted over to digital. And you'd actually, it's actually kind of surprising. Um, TV advertising spend has still been rising despite flat or slightly down audience. But one of the things that the broadcasters are really worried about is, you know, not only not only is the total pot of advertising probably going to go down, but also where it's spent is probably going to probably going to move in the favor of digital channels. Absolutely, we, we, we've seen lots of talk around around that uh, from, from folks uh, in the industry. One of the main anchors that is keeping a lot of people in their linear TV contracts is access to live sports, and you remove that. From the equation, a lot of those eyeballs that you're traditionally buying with, with TV advertising, at least in the near term, aren't going to be there because the programming that they're watching uh, goes away. So there's potential to accelerate uh, that that trend. And I think it's important to note, uh, you know, we we talked about a lot of this revenue is just going to be lost for the sports leagues. You know, for a lot of these concerts we'll talk about Live Nation later can be rescheduled to a later date. But you can't really. There's only so many of these these basketball games that you can reschedule. Or, or for March Madness, uh, the NCAA loses its main source of revenue uh, for the year. I pulled some numbers for 2019. The NCAA had 1.1 billion in revenue. About a billion of that uh, was March Madness alone. So some of this revenue just disappears. We've seen some interesting efforts uh, by you know uh, some companies. WWE uh, is one example of they've really pushed to make sure they can keep holding um, live events. Even though they're they're holding them without uh, without 
audiences in the arena. They actually got declared by the state of Florida an essential industry, which has been there's been some political uh, issues issues there. But that's all been behind protecting uh, their revenues. They they have locked in uh, from from new sports rights or new rights deals with uh, the USA Network and with with Fox. So you've seen these big efforts. I know you were talking about UFC is trying to do some of these same things as well. Yeah. It's interesting because the way the the way the sports broadcasting industry works is um, it's all contractual. So the broadcasters like CBS or ESPN will will commit up front to um, airing a certain number of, of live events, live sporting events over over a certain period. It's usually a long term contract. So you know, a lot of people are having issues with their contracts right now because in in a lot of ways it's unsafe just to even have the events and there's just not a good way to schedule them so one of the contracts with the UFC is I think they made a deal with ESPN where they're supposed to broadcast 42 live events per year and and they've already had to postpone all their events from March and April so the head of the ESP uh, the head of uh, the UFC Dana White has been pretty adamant somewhat aggressive about wanting to be the first major sports organization to return to a normal schedule. And, you know, a lot of that pressure is coming from just the contract they signed with ESPN. Um, So there's been some speculation, some rumor that uh, the UFC might uh, host a, a fighting event on an Indian reservation or even reserve like an island, like a battle royale fight island. Um, so that could be interesting. I think it's safe to say that when it is safe to have these uh, events and to broadcast these events, we're going to see a lot of a lot of events just come out all at once, just because a lot of these sporting organizations are going to be trying to catch up on their on their contracts. And I mean, to their credit, if, if we're still social distancing and spending a lot of time at home. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on it, and I think people are going to be happy to watch these events. Yeah, I can tell you, I'm really missing sports. Give it, being trapped at home all the time with no sports to watch, it, you know, it, after a while, it just it's a little bit of a return to normalcy. But it is interesting, a lot of the, the strings being pulled to try to pr- protect uh, those contractually negotiated uh, uh, rights by the WWE and others, and some of these trickle-down uh, effects for, for the rights holders, uh, TV broadcasters, that sort of thing. Now, the, when we look at public companies that are probably the most directly affected uh, by this this shutdown in live events, it's Live Nation, and that that's a, a company you mentioned. You, you've done uh, a significant amount of work on. Before we dive into how they're being affected by the shutdown specifically, for folks who aren't familiar with the company, can you kind of give us a high level look at what they do, how they make money? Yeah, uh, Live Nation is a really interesting company. They have a few. They have their hands in a few different areas all around the 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 concert ecosystem. So they're um, probably the largest global um, promoter and um, live concert company. They they own about three hundred. They own a little bit less than three hundred concert venues all around the world. They also own Ticketmaster, so they're the number one ticketer ticketer for events and they also ticket events that they're not the they're not the uh, venue manager of and in addition to owning the venues and ticketing 
They also do a lot with sponsoring events and managing artists. So, for example, um, they manage uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce on in helping schedule their tours and also some of their things outside of just their concerts. And it's a global business. So you got to think that they're hurting they're hurting pretty badly i mean basically in march um their their business was was shut down because you know what a concert is essentially just a large gathering of people and it couldn't have come at a worse time for a company like live nation because it's actually it's it's a very seasonal business and if you actually look at the company's financials they actually run a loss in the winter time and they make that all back and then some in the spring and summertime with just huge uh, concert series and live festivals and just given the timing um, the summer concert series looks like it's off yeah absolutely this is their most important revenue earning uh, times of the year uh, this Q2 and Q3 uh, one other interesting aspect of the business, Elise, I want to talk about a, a little bit is they talk about the flywheel that they that they have. When you look at the operating concert venues, part of the business, not super profitable, but what really is is the ticketing side of the business, uh, the advertising side of the business. So that they they're able to leverage all these pieces together, where each of them by himself might not be super attractive, but as a whole, uh, can can really uh, drive some value. How, how does that necessarily work for the for the company? Yeah, Nick, I, I think that's the reason why a lot of uh, really smart investors have been interested in Live Nation, because in a lot of ways, it's it's like a vertical monopoly, vertical integration monopoly, where they own the concert venue, they own the ticketing solution. Um, in, in some ways, they own the artists because they manage the artists. And, you know, each one of those, each aspect of that business, you know, owning a venue or doing sponsorships for concerts or even artist management, each one of those pieces individually are, you know, those are okay businesses. But when you stack them all together, it gives them some really great competitive advantages. For example, if they're managing the artist and they also own the venue, um, well, they can just direct their artist towards their, their own venue for their live event which can give them an edge over other competing venues in, in, in the same cities. Um, and it's, it's actually gotten to the point where um, the government actually views them as, as a monopoly, and there's been a lot of uh, antitrust issues going back to when they acquired Ticketmaster. So, you know, it's you'll hear a lot of investors talk about how some of the best businesses to own are are these monopolies or duopolies and you know if you're a monopoly and you have pricing power um, you could have really interesting economics combine that with the fact that the global the global concert business has been growing over time and it's it's been a really great stock to own and um, a, a lot of people have gotten caught up in it especially now that um, that the business model has has kind of suffered from from um, what's going on with the the pandemic. Yeah, you mentioned the antitrust stuff. This is one of these cases where I, you know I went as I've looked back at this company 
the merger between Live Nation and Ticketmaster, I think, was an absolutely a mistake that the government let it happen in the first place. They put this consent decree in place that is uh, supposed to have limited their ability to, to use those, some of those synergies uh, we talked about earlier, and doesn't seem to have worked. Uh, you, you mentioned monopolies. I, I, I think about Live Nation a lot of the ways I think about Comcast in that everybody complains about Comcast and the customer service, and everybody similarly complains about Ticketmaster and how they don't like the fees. But do everything you can, and you can't get away from doing business with these folks, which which uh, you know it provides some attractive characteristics for them. However, uh, you meant, we mentioned the flywheel, how all these parts of the business work together to create value. Well, when that flywheel gets shut down, when you throw a wrench in the flywheel like this global pandemic has caused, uh, that can create some issues for the business. And I know everybody's looking at the balance sheets of these companies right now to see how they can survive uh, what's going on with the, with the pandemic. So when you look at Live Nation's balance sheet, what should investors be paying attention to? Uh, yeah, um, taking on debt always sounds like a good idea um, when 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 it's a, when times are good. I mean, it's a way to get higher levered returns. Um, there's actually, um, I think, a Warren Buffett quote where he says, where he advises people to avoid the three L's, and it's uh, liquor, ladies, and leverage, right? right. Because um, those things always sound good when times are those those always sound good when times are good. But if you have a really massive business interruption, you really don't want to have debt to worry about. And unfortunately, Live Nation does. Um, if you look at its balance sheet, um, it has about $3.3 billion of gross debt. And it also has $2.4 billion of cash. But the tricky thing about this company is that its, it's cash balance is, is a little bit deceptive. So the way this business works is they promote concerts as far ahead as a year in advance, and they sell those tickets, and they collect the cash for those concerts that are going to happen in the summer all the way as, as early as fall of the, of the year before. So that $2.4 billion of cash that they have, um, about over $800 million of that is actually prepaid concert tickets. And a lot of those tickets that they sold, you know, it's, it's not clear if they're going to happen. They're certainly not all going to happen in 2020. So there's question, there's a lot of questions around how much cash do they really have. Um, and, you know, investors are clearly concerned about it. I, I mean, as, as, as I referenced, the stock is, is down. It was at somewhere near $70 earlier this year. And now it's below forty dollars, so it's about it's off about fifty percent. And you you could also look at the bond market. The bond market is a little concerned because the bonds are trading at eighty cents on the dollar, and the, the credit rating agencies are are also not very impressed. They they have Live Nation at junk status. So, you know, clearly the balance sheet is is kind of front and center, and you know, recently the CEO jumped on CNBC to talk about the company and how it's dealing with the pandemic. And of course it was asked about, he was asked about the balance sheet and the way he described it is that the company has about $4 billion of liquidity. So a lot of that's coming from, from its cash balance that it still has, but it does have 
you know, another billion dollars in borrowing capacity. And the business itself has um, annual fixed expenses of, of about $2 billion per year. So if the company has uh, $4 billion of liquidity, as, as the CEO says it does, then theoretically, um, you know, it can, the, the company can make it through 2020 and into 2021. And it really just becomes a question of um, when when can the business turn on again, and um, and how and how worried the creditors are, are going to be um, about about holding holding on to the debt. Right when when you talk about access to this liquidity, I think one of the the, the big criticisms, you know, Jim Chanos, very well known short seller, has talked about you know they have access to this liquidity, but this is going to Assuming they have they have to to tap all those lines and and you know go into that uh, that kind of goodie bag of debt to get through this this cycle this this company it was was already quite levered is going to be even more leveraged uh, on the back end of that is that would that be a correct characterization? Yeah, um, de- definitely. And I mean that's that's not an unusual case for even outside of the live events industry. You know, if you look at how. Most companies are dealing with the interruption in business. They're all um, basically tapping into their credit lines, calling their banks, trying to just get as much liquidity as they can, just so that they can pay all their bills. Um, Live, Live Nation actually did um, re like they went back to their banks and they announced that they they made some agreements with their banks that that actually gave them. A little bit more liquidity. It gave them a couple hundred million dollars in, in more liquidity. Um, and you know, if you want to get really technical, there's these things in in bond agreements called covenants, where banks will will tell the company will basically um, as as a condition for giving access to to funds, they'll they'll say, well, you can't get too levered, here are the limits on your leverage. And that's definitely been an area of concern, but in the case of Live Nation, its banks have actually given it a little bit more leeway just um, in reaction to what's going on. And, you know, that, that kind of makes sense because Live Nation is a business that has a lot of um, valuable assets. You know, they own um 273 or have or at least have an equity interest in 273 venues you know so there is value to that real estate and the debt holders and the banks aren't you know they they're not motivated to see the company go out of business so they're going to work with their uh borrowers um you know selfish in in a self, self selfishly because that's actually better for the for the lenders as well Right, these folks don't want to be running a concert business. These are bankers, and they're in the business of running banks. And if they can, to the extent that they can, not have to go through all the uh, you know, uh, procedures they would need to take take control of their, those assets, it's in their interest to keep the business operating. Oh, that said, yeah, you know, in normal times, if 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 we were in boom times and Live Nation, you know, had had issues with its credit rating and its leverage, the banks would treat it very differently. But it's it's just a realization that these aren't normal times, so the uh, the lending agreements aren't aren't gonna proceed as they would in normal times. 
Sure. So, so when you look at this company today and where it's trading, the, the, the state of the balance sheet, how, how do you weigh those interests uh, around whether you would make a make an investment or not? Yeah, it's tricky, and and that's obviously reflected in into where the stock is. But obviously, the company isn't isn't going to stand still. They, to their credit, they um, you know they did they did increase their liquidity with that recent announcement with their banks. But they've also committed to cutting um, five hundred million dollars of of costs per year, and that's a pretty big commitment. And what they're essentially doing is their executive teams are have agreed to salary reductions. They're trying to get concessions in terms of deferring their rents or negotiating lower rents. Um, you know, they're reducing costs in in every way in every way they can. Um, so maybe their fixed costs aren't going to be two billion dollars per year. You know, maybe they can get them down to like one point five billion dollars per year. But essentially, the company is taking out its playbook from two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, and you know they're hunkering down, increasing liquidity, cutting costs, and as an investor, you know that's definitely what you want to see them do. Um, you know, it's. It's one of these situations where you got to think: Is that enough? Is um, you know, is the liquidity gonna gonna sustain? Um, what's their balance sheet gonna look at look like in a year, in two years? Um, and that kind of depends on you know, are our concerts coming back at the end of 2020? Are they coming back in in 2021 when they do come back? how many people are actually going to go to the concert. So it's not just about having the concerts. It's about, it's about having, it's about selling out the concerts, right? Because there are a lot of fixed costs to putting on a concert. So if, if you're putting Beyonce at Madison Square Garden and she only sold 30% of the tickets because everyone's, everyone's too afraid to go, um, that's not very helpful. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of things to weigh. And I mean, you could even, as as an equity investor, say, well, you know, I think that at the end of 2021, there's a good chance that the business is going to be back and it's going to be booming. However, just because it's back and it's booming doesn't mean that this is a company with a balance sheet that you're going to want to sustain because that you're going to want to invest in. Because if we're, you know, if we have to wait 18 months and the company had to add another three billion dollars to its debt load. You know, now you're talking about a company that, if it was at, you know, three or four times debt to debt to EBITDA, so three or four times leverage ratio. You know, now you're talking about like six to eight times, and um, that's actually going to definitely weigh on the kind of valuation multiple that you give to this kind of business. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's exactly the position I'm in. I, I own a little bit tiny position uh, in Live Nation that I, I, I got, uh, you know, at the beginning of the, of the sell-off. I was fortunate enough to get it towards its lows, so I, I'm still still green here after it sold off some. But definitely a lot of concerns to me around the balance sheet and what this business looks like a year from now. Even if even if it's able to get through, doesn't have issues with its with its creditors, it's going to take some period of time to to deleverage itself. And that is assuming that we return to conditions as they existed before any of this happened, and we can't really count on that. So this is this is one of those companies that I am definitely not going to be adding to. I'm still trying to decide 
whether it's a company I'm super confident in, you know, for the next three to five years. So uh, those are those kind of the balances you're going to weigh. But when you look at the assets, there there are some attractive uh, things to say about them. It's just there's a lot of uncertainty right now around the balance sheet. This is, wouldn't be one I'd be rushing in to to put a whole big chunk of my portfolio in. I, there's 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 strong arguments on both sides. And this is interesting, right? You have two legendary investors on both sides of this, right? Jim Chanos is saying this is this is a, a stock I want to short, and then John Malone, who is another legendary investor, owns a owns a big big giant chunk of this company. Uh, we shall see. Those are those are the factors that you should consider, though, uh, as an investor. Another uh, live event company that I know a lot of folks around here have some interest in uh, is Eventbrite. Luis, when you look at the, the what's going on with that company, how similar is it to, to what's going on with Live Nation? How different? I think they have a net cash position, no? Yeah. Um... So Eventbrite's a much smaller company, where um, you know it's 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 a fairly recent IPO. I think it IPO'd a couple of years ago, and its its market cap is you know just a fraction of Live Nation. It's it's not exactly in the same business as Live Nation. Eventbrite caters more to like independent events, small events, not necessarily concerts, but just kind of communal gatherings. And you know they make money in some in some similar ways um, by selling um, services to event providers and um, also taking some of the ticketing revenue um, in compensation for that. But it, it, it's also it's a very different business from Live Nation because Eventbrite is more of a tech platform. So Eventbrite doesn't own you know massive uh, amphitheaters and and theaters around the world. It's you know what what it really is is it's a corporate office with you know with staff that manages the tech platform. You know there's a lot of variable costs in this kind of business because. You know the the variable costs involves running the platform, hosting the servers, paying for marketing, but really where the costs lie are in the fixed overhead. Um, so what Eventbrite is doing is is actually pretty bold. They came out a couple weeks ago and said they're going to lay off forty five percent of their staff, and um, and it's it's going to cost them some money to do that. You know they're they're trying to treat their employees right. They're they're paying them severance fees. They're exiting some leases, which which costs a little bit of money. But you know they essentially believe that they're going to save a hundred million dollars by doing that. And you know that's probably the right move to make. And yeah, as as you mentioned, Eventbrite is sitting on a little bit of cash. They have the same issue as Live Nation with their cash balance, where you know the majority of their cash balance is actually like working capital. It's it's um, Prepaid it's like tickets. Uh, tickets that they pre-sold, so they're probably gonna have to refund a lot of that. So you know, again, you got to be careful. You can't just look at the balance sheet and say, "Oh, this company has three hundred million in cash." You know, <laughs> it's it's in bear markets and recessions where you actually got to look at even go down into the notes of of the annual report and just learn about well, what is the cash? Is is the cash actually cash? Is the cash sitting in foreign bank accounts that needs to be taxed? Is it something they could access? Um, which is it's kind of unusual from from a bull market where in a bull market, a lot of investors, they don't even look at the balance sheet. They just look at how much can the business earn and what kind of multiple can can you put on that. But now we've come to this place where, you know, it's 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 just as important to to kind of think through will this company survive? 
Um, and I think Eventbrite's doing the right thing in terms of in terms of what they need to do for the business because you know it's 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 a young company. It, it's not. It actually just turned cash flow positive last year, but it's obviously not going to be cash flow positive this year and next year. And just given the fact that it's much smaller than Live Nation, it's going to have a lot. It's going to have a much tougher time getting banks to loan it a bunch of money and tapping the uh, capital markets, which is important to understand. When you know there's a there's a big difference when you invest in small companies that have less access to capital versus investing in large companies that can really tap the capital markets much more effectively. Absolutely, just to, to call it out, Eventbrite is like 700 million market cap. That's about 10x, maybe maybe 12x uh, uh, smaller uh, than Live Nation. So so much smaller. And then. Yeah, the other thing you mentioned about access to capital is Live Nation could probably do some sale leasebacks of real estate. They could do lots of lots of creative financing uh, through their through their um, their uh, venues. Correct? Yeah, you know, th- there's there's probably some things that they could do with with their real estate. You have to kind of go through and see what they've already done because I think a lot of their existing debt is already in the form of like uh, mortgages. Um, I think more importantly for Live Nation. They have a pretty strong group of investors that back them. So um, you know they have John John Malone, who has uh, deep pockets. Certainly, John Malone wouldn't want to see Live Nation go under. Um, however, John Malone's an interesting character. So you could also see John Malone um, kind of pulling a Warren Buffett type move and giving himself some really attractive preferred stock, or or kind of benefiting himself in a way where he bails out the company. And also puts himself ahead of minority equity investors. So you have to kind of think through all the different aspects of the direction of what getting more liquidity means. Sure. So when we look at Eventbrite, it may be maybe a little bit different cash and debt situation relative to Live Nation. Uh, is it is it the same kind of balancing act to weigh? I mean, because they, they do have less leverage concerns, but they're a much smaller company with less access to capital. So kind of that same balancing act between the potential for the business to snap back in a meaningful way on the back end of this versus the, the position that they would be in from the loss of revenue, uh, balance sheet deterioration, that sort of thing. How, how would you think about making an investment in Eventbrite today? Yeah. Um, so like Live Nation, the stock is also down. Um, you know, I think it was a $20 stock. Before this, and now it's like an eight dollar stock, or it's less than ten dollars. So it's down more than fifty percent, and Live Nation is down a lot too. So you know, clearly the odds there, there's a lot of there's a lot of probabilities being factored in here in terms of uh, the survivability and also um, how quickly earnings return. I think I think again, I I want to probably put on my my hat as a balance sheet investor before I put on my hat as a earnings investor and just think through like, well, you know, how much, how much cash burn are they going to have relative to, um, relative to their, um, to their liquidity. And I think it's also important to think through if you were the CFO of one of these companies, what would you do? So, you know, their stock prices are down a lot, but, they're not zero, right? So debt isn't the only option, and you have to you have to think you have to think about well, 
should should these companies be raising equity? Um, should they be tapping the equity markets? Because the equity, if they raise equity, they don't have to pay that back, and they don't have to pay interest on that equity, and um, and that kind of helps you understand it better as an investor to kind of think through well, what are their options? And I'd say Live Nation, you know, they might have some real estate value. They might have some more access to the debt markets, but maybe Eventbrite, um, where where it can what what it could really do is tap the equity market. So, if I was thinking through an investment, I would also think through well, how much how much am I willing to be diluted as as a minority equity investor, where this investment still makes sense to me? Absolutely, I, I think it goes back to your point earlier that in. The bull market, you're always thinking about your upside. In the bear market, you're really thinking about your downside. So, income statement for for when we're in the bull market, balance sheet for when for when we're in a bear market, and balance sheet is really what everybody should be focusing on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so just kind of wanted to zoom out again. We talked off the top of the show about how we don't really know what things are going to look like going forward, but. It's always fun to debate and speculate about how, how things can change. So I had a few questions for you about how um, about how the world might look uh, at the end of this. So, so the first one is, how do you think our consumption of live events changes after this? Does it change? And if it does, how, how so? Yeah, um, that, that's a really interesting question. And... Um, you know, obviously, I think there's two things. I think there's there's one school of thought that says that, you know, there could be more of a permanent shift in behavior where people um, maybe are more permanently less willing to go to a crowded event space, either, you know, whether that being a crowded concert or a crowded... Um, even a movie theater or crowded stadium. And, you know, I think I tend to disagree with that idea. I think that um, any any time you've had one of these big shocks, whether it's 9-11 or, or something else, um, people, people come back. I think people are still going to want to go see their favorite artists perform live. I think they're going to still want to have that in-person experience. You know, it's a question of when they're going to feel safe enough to do that. And, you know, perhaps for the next couple of years, actually going to a live event might involve getting your temperature taken up front or presenting some kind of form of identification which shows that, you know, you have been tested for a virus. And, you know, that sounds very um, dystopian and... But that 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 could that could be a reality. On the other side of things, you know, from like the spectator's point of view, the spectator at home, um, you know, the way that the way that sports have been consumed primarily has been um, through linear TV, through traditional cable TV packages, and you know that that actually could change. So. You know, you kind of referenced earlier this idea of people canceling their cable subscriptions. And, you know, we've talked about cord cutting a lot um, in the past. And it's certainly a big it's certainly a big factor. So and it's not the only factor, because you also have to think that people might 
might be more willing to cancel their cable subscriptions in a recession just because they, they need to save costs. So so you kind of have a secular trend and also um, a cyclical trend there, which, which, which leads me to think that cord cutting could accelerate in the next year. And the fact that there's not live sports on TV just gives people more of a reason to cut the cord if, if that was the reason why they um, were subscribed. And just to put numbers onto it, I, I believe um, cable subscriptions actually peaked in 2011 and are down 20%. So there's 20% less um, households in the U.S. that are paying for cable subscriptions now versus in 2011. And and you see that reflected actually in in the ratings for, for sports. I mean... Sports are still the the highest rated thing on TV, but the ratings are flat to down in the in the last couple of years. So, you know, probably the best example is to look at the Super Bowl, where, you know, I think in 2015 they had a record year. They had something like 115 million people watch the Super Bowl, and you know, in 2019 they actually had less than 100 million people watch the Super Bowl. Now, you know, maybe the Super Bowl is less popular in culture, but, you know, I'm sure the fact that less people have cable subscriptions is factoring into that. So, you know, if if we think that there's going to be fewer cable subscriptions, but people are still going to watch sports, you know, maybe maybe there's maybe there's an alternative that emerges. Um, Maybe um, maybe a streaming company or an online tech company starts um, exhibiting sports. And you've actually seen Disney, who owns ESPN, start to dabble in that. They launched this thing in 2018 called ESPN Plus, which um, isn't showing... It doesn't It doesn't actually show all of like the high-profile stuff that they want people to watch on the ESPN channel. But for $5 a month, you get access to a lot of other things that just don't make the cut for for the cable channels. So, you know, they're showing a lot of UFC matches. They're showing a lot of hockey and um, Major League Baseball uh, matches on there. And ESPN Plus is actually an interesting test case in that when they first launched it, you know, it had like one or two million people subscribed. But as of February, you know, now there's almost eight million people subscribed and I'm sure that um, when sports come back, you know, be, l- maybe later this year, um, they're probably going to see even more people subscribe if that's a way to watch sports. Absolutely, yeah. So, so it's just this 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 shift of as fewer people are are subscribing to cable. We we've heard uh, some statements from I believe the NFL uh, leadership has said that. Their, their main focus is on getting as many eyeballs as possible on the product, whether that's on linear TV or elsewhere. And if this accelerates the transition away from cable and moves more eyeballs off that platform, then you know, pushing to uh, these other services like ESPN Plus, uh, et, et cetera, starts to make a, a lot of sense to them. And I, I can see the argument there. Yeah. One other area I, I wanted to ask you about, because I know you've done uh, uh, some research on the on the video game companies, and then we'll... We'll go away because I know we've been talking for a good while for for, for the listeners, but uh, but so on the esports side, 
is, is this an accelerator for esports to go mainstream, given that they have no competition from traditional sports for you know whatever six months? We don't know how long at this point, but for this period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is is probably yes. Um, it's, it's it's tough to say. Um, it's it's you know demographically, it's a very different market. But if you think about it, in a lot of ways, um, you know, esports is 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 all that a lot of people have because um, when when you start talking about ways to view competitive activities that that aren't from like the nineties or whatever ESPN showing on TV right now. Um, that being said, I mean, there's, there's, there's actually a pretty healthy debate on, on how big esports can be. I, I think if you look at places in Asia, there's a really large audience in the hundreds of millions of people who, who actually do want to watch people play their favorite video games. Um, in the U.S., there's... There's been some interesting um, developments, you know. I think ABC and some other cable channels have actually aired um, some of the finals for games like Overwatch, and um, I think there's actually this uh, NBA game called NBA 2K that has actually also uh, broadcasted some of their live uh, their live esports events. But the ratings they haven't been there yet, and it's it's it, you know there's a lot of it kind of esports is one of those things where there's a lot of speculation, there's a lot of hype, and there's a lot of growth. But I'm not as convinced that um, that esports is, is really going to be is ever going to be as big as let's say traditional sports. Um, I, I think there's a lot less interest there from the broader public. But if you look at the demographics, you know they skew they skew much younger. So, um, you know, as those demographics age, you know, if we're talking 10, 10 or 20 years from now, and the people who like esports today still like esports, and maybe, you know, the future, the future uh, younger generations also like esports, you know, that could actually be interesting. That, that could actually start to, to grow into a sizable market. Yeah, we'll but I guess, I guess the point is, I don't think esports in 2020 is going to fill the void of March Madness. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I love uh, video games. I've actually picked up a lot more video games in the past few weeks, given you know the, the options that I have. But it's not going to replace college football for me ever as someone who went to a school in the SEC uh, and all those sorts of things. I think when we talk about this, this industry, it's, it's one that clearly is very incredibly important to how we as people consume entertainment and media, and it's being very directly affected by what's by what's going on right now. And we don't have a lot of clear answers about when those issues will be resolved or what things will look like going forward. But what we can do is kind of soberly evaluate the positions these businesses are in and what opportunities they might have going into the future and, and how the, fu- the, the set of opportunities available may have changed as a result of this. And, and I hope uh, that this conversation gave our listeners a good kind of overview of the things that we're paying attention to uh, as we evaluate this space. Luis, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing all your insights. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, Had fun. Absolutely. Let's do it again sometime soon. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Luis Sanchez, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.